from Westmount, grab your copy of God's Word, and let's continue by turning to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. It continues to be our study here, these Lord's Day mornings, and we're in the 10th chapter. We're going to pick it up, verse 5 in a moment. Romans 10. As we begin, consider with me the man that is known for his anger, his pouting, his self-pity, and of course his running. His identity is synonymous with a rebel run that led to a three-night stay inside a fish. Yes, he is the prophet Jonah. Of course, he's renowned, and you see him in many things, kids' pop-up books and new terms like the Jonah Syndrome and so on. And I say that to say that the fame of this prophet has focused on symptoms and consequences, right? Jonah ran and was swallowed and was spit out and had an angry pout, yes, but what is often glossed over is to why he did so. It's not that he was lazy. It's not even that he feared the evil Assyrians. No. Jonah ran and Jonah was angry because God is slow to anger and merciful. And what's worse, in Jonah's mind at least, is that God was merciful to a people that were not God's people. Yes, God was extending mercy to the Ninevites. Let's read just a brief snippet of that account for both the context, and we're going to hear from Jonah in his own words. I'm going to read here from Jonah 3 and a bit into 4. The good news, of course, you know, saints, you know this account. The good news has come to the people of Nineveh. So Jonah's been spit out and he goes to Nineveh. It's been proclaimed to the king and the people, and then here's the response, Jonah 3.6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose, arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh this, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then this, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, in any normal circumstances, there should be a chorus of rejoicing. The wicked have turned and relented and found God. So Jonah, what of it? We keep reading chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah. It didn't just displease him. What does the text say? Exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Now hear this. This is why, this is from Jonah, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. There it is. Jonah ran to Tarshish because he knew that God was gracious and merciful. Did you hear that? So Jonah sat under a booth, as the account will go on to share, sulking, watching, waiting, and hoping that God would change his mind. Jonah was angry because God was demonstrating that he was Lord of all. All people, all nations. Raising whom he wills, having mercy on whom he wills, hardening whom he wills, that is God. Israelite and Ninevite. Remember the account, even the mariners on the ship 
God was their Lord. So we consider Jonah's rebellion this morning. We consider it with his kinsmen. Yes, the majority of Israel, right through to the time of Paul's writing in the book of Romans. They too, in rebellion against the Lord, hearts hardened vertically, but also hearts hardened horizontally. Jonah was just one in ancient times. Remain for the Jew the thought that their God extending mercy to anyone else outside of their nation, to other nations, and especially nations that were enemies to the nation of Israel. That is not only what God demonstrated upon his arrival in the first century, a program to the Gentiles, right, in light of, a program extended in light of Israel's rejection of their Messiah and King. It's not only what was demonstrated, but such a broader plan of other nation inclusion, listen, was always God's plan. This is nothing new. When Christ came and his people rejected him, it's nothing new, no plan B. God was always not just Lord of Israel, but Lord of all. That reality is is part of Paul defending his thesis here in Romans 9, 10, and 11. As we saw in 9, 6, the word of God has not failed because of Israel's unbelief. Israel's rebellion was foretold and always part of God's sovereign plan. And more than the word of God not failing, what Israel and, and we today are seeing unfold is the very plan and word of God progressing just as God said. And today in this age, it is in the salvation extended to the nations. I just look out at a room and consider the nations represented here. This is the plan of God, and it always has been. In chapter 11, we will see the purpose of this Gentile program, praise God, and how he uses it for Israel's future. But here in chapter 10, we simply see Paul explaining this intermediary program. That's what he's doing in chapter 10. And doing so by way of taking us back to the word of God and the prophets. I mentioned off the top of chapter 9, almost one-third, almost one-third of Paul's Old Testament references in his writing are in these chapters. In other words, Paul just keeps going left and keeps going there over and over again to demonstrate his point. And we're going to see, believe me, beloved, plenty in this section today. So let's be ready to survey. Start in verse 5. Look at it with me. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him? of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. For they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for the voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. 
Father, we ask this morning that these words open before us, these living words from you, Lord, that you would enlighten within us, show us what we need to see. Father, we pray with your spirit in us that we would see and receive and understand and, Lord, look to live out by your help and enablement as we leave later, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So much here, as you can see, but so much Old Testament truth, by the way, that the Bible reader in Paul's time would have seen before. The reader of this letter would know this. So Paul's not going to a foreign context here. He knew that his readers would understand this. And, and what are we talking about here? The near and ready accessibility of God's words. Did you see that in there? From the prophet Moses in Deuteronomy. Also, the promise of salvation to all who call upon the Lord. That's from the prophet Joel. And then the repository from the prophet Isaiah. Just so much here. Prophesying Israel's unbelief. Telling us about Gentile evangelism. Isaiah speaking of God's initiating grace and God's patient offer extended. All of that in this passage. In fact, all of that and more from the Old Testament. Paul gets into that and unpacks that for us in these verses that we've read. And it's a demonstration in light of Israel's unbelief that God is Lord of all. Along with the Lord, we'll see the people, the word, and the prophets. So lots to get to. Let's go. First, the Lord who is close. Look again at verse 5. The Lord who is close. It's our first point. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. Look at that. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Very helpful here. Again, the first of many Old Testament references that we'll see. And before we get turning, we have to note carefully what Paul says Moses wrote about. Now note this. He says, Moses writes about something. What is it? The righteousness that is based on the law. Listen, Paul has been contrasting. What have we been learning? Let's just keep the argument here in Romans. He's been contrasting two kinds of righteousness, right? That's been the point in these chapters and in the book of Romans. Well, here the apostle presents one of those again, the righteousness based on the law. Now, what is that? We've looked at that through man's efforts, and often we think about that in a modern context. But let's go where Paul takes us now. As he references, he says this, the person who does commandments shall live by them. That actually is a reference from the Old Testament. So let's go there. It's in Leviticus 18. Let's just follow Paul here. Turn to Leviticus 18. And this is a passage in the law that Paul is going to show that one can be holding to a righteousness based on the law. Now, for context, just going to read the first four verses of the 18th chapter of Leviticus. And just look and just note the whole tenor of these first four verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. So we need to pause and just reflect on what is being said here. This law, this righteousness, right, this righteousness, Yahweh is outlining, and note the language in these first four verses, a practical righteousness. Do you see that? What do we mean by that? Meaning, my people, Yahweh says, this is how you walk as my people. Do you see that? Not like an Egyptian, not like a Canaanite. You are my people, so practically, this is how you live out being my people. By the way, confirming this practical righteousness and that that's what's in view, look at verse 4. He repeats this. He says this in verse 2. But look at verse 4. He says, end of it, I am the Lord your God. Why is that important? Israel, relationship is already established. Do you see that? It's initiated by me, remember. I am your God. So as we covered in Exodus, this now, this law given on Sinai is how you walk in relationship with me. 
That's the point here. Thus, what verse 5 is saying, now look at verse 5, you shall therefore, because you are my people and not walk like them, you shall keep my statutes and my rules. If, I, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. I pray you were listening as Andrew read Deuteronomy 30. And did you catch all the ways in which life was established, the flourishing, the prospering, right? This is what's in view in the law. This is how you will have life. It's so, so important, beloved, as we try to understand what's going on here. What verse 5 is saying here, what Paul is referencing, he's going to a part of the law where it's articulated very clearly. This is life lived. And life lived is found in obeying Yahweh's statutes and rules. That's the point. This is not eternal life gained or doing that makes one right in God's sight, practically. Now, let's consider the administration we're in. In one sense, God, for this time, had delivered the people from Egypt and made them for this time positionally right before him and and gave a system of sacrifice and so on. But eternal life was always a different story. The law, and again, this is to review, was never designed to outline the way to eternal life. It was never intended for that. What have we studied? Galatians here in Romans, the law was to tutor to living life under God. It was to point, it was to show sin and outline holiness. That's the point of the law. In Exodus 19, God had already taken care of the deliverance part, right? And now as he brings him to the mountain, he says, this is the living part. Now, Westmount, track with me for a moment. Let's put on our thinking caps. What do you think happens if one takes a system and a mechanism and a law that was designed for practical living and wants to make it the law for eternal dwelling? What do you think happens? Well, a whole lot of trouble, of course. In other words, what happens if one changes the terms of saving righteousness achievement. Well, I would submit to you, let me give you one vignette from the New Testament. You get this. You get a really vigorous, rich young man comes up to Jesus who knows the law inside out. And what does he say to Jesus, Matthew 19? Teacher, what good deed must I do to have what? Eternal life. Tell me what I need to do because I've done a lot. And I've taken that mechanism for practical righteousness, and I think I have eternal righteousness. And that's what you get. A whole lot of trouble. Beloved, this Jew in the same first century as Paul believed that he could gain eternal righteousness through practical righteousness through law works. Now back to Romans 10. This is, as we saw last week in Romans 10 verse 3, let's look at it again as we're being reminded of this zeal, like the rich young man. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that's it, and seeking to establish their own, so a different righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Do you see the contrast? Paul is holding this contrast through the whole section. There's their own righteousness. They want to establish the expense of God's righteousness. Westmont, we do not have what is needed for the righteousness to be made right with God. As Jerry reminded us at the table today, we don't have that. And we must abandon any sense that we can bring something to God. We must. The righteousness that makes one right, that justifies one in God's sight, listen, that righteousness only comes from God. You and I can't muster that up. We don't have it. And Paul now turns to look at that righteousness. Listen, that saving righteousness efficacious righteousness from God that justifies, verse 6, look at it. This is the righteousness that we've been studying now in Romans, but the righteousness based on faith. This is gospel righteousness. In fact, we must do this. Just consider with me, you can turn Romans 1, verse 17. What is it in this gospel of God? For in it the righteousness of God, manner of revelation from faith For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Remember in chapter 3, verse 22, the righteousness of God. There it is again, instrument through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What about chapter 4? Remember 22, talking about Abraham, 
And what kind of righteousness did he have? The Jew would have said, well, he did a lot of things, and Abraham was a good doer of the law. This is why his, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Listen, and here it is. It will be counted to us who believe, not those who do, those who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Note that language. That righteousness by faith, not works, is what makes us right eternally. This is righteousness that has nothing to do with work, but everything to do with belief. Now listen, Paul warns against leaning against law righteousness, practical righteousness to save and justify. And you see, this is, this is trouble, no matter when it pops up. And it was true uh, not just for Israel, but true for the churches. Think about the Galatian churches. Do you remember when he went through Galatians? This was the problem in the churches of Galatia. And this Jewish mindset there, right, that can rely on the law. In fact, in a section here, it's framed by not only them looking to do that for salvation, but for sanctification, as Galatians 3 opens. Just listen to this, and listen to the language. In Galatians 3, I'm going to read 10 to 14. He says this to the congregation, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And we pause there for a minute to say, In other words, if you lean on the law, if that's what you want to do to save you, you must do it all perfectly. And here's the problem. What does James 2.10 say? If you stumble in one point, you're accountable for what? All of it. This is Paul's point. I continue in verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Do you see that? He goes again to Leviticus. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Again, just so much here, but let's try and sum it up. Righteousness by law. Here is the point in Galatians and Romans. Righteousness by law does not save. Only the righteousness by faith. Now that said, look what Paul does here. The Jew could say, if the Jew's tracking with Paul's argument here in Romans... The law, at least I could do. I can do the law. It is written. It is clear. It's attainable. And this is what, of course, Moses was reminding the second generation. And do you see there's a, there's a good instinct there, but it can be a perverse instinct. And this is not a Jewish instinct that can go astray. It can be ours too. And you know this instinct. In your sin, true believer. What is the first thing you want to do? Do something to make it right, which is a good thing. And that's bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. But ultimately, in your sin, you can't do anything to make it up. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. But that's in us. So we look to law and rule and work. But look at what Paul says next in verse 6. We look to those things and we search for them. Verse 6 but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Look at this. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is a word of faith that we proclaim. Now to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to understand the reference. So we've already had a running start here, but let's go back briefly to Deuteronomy 30. This is where the reference is taken from. And let's just try and make this very simple. Just a couple things here in Deuteronomy 30. Again, Andrew read that whole chapter for us. Very, very helpful. Number one, we're going to comment on two things in Deuteronomy 30 as you look at it with me. The law was always pointing the Jew to the heart. Did you catch that? Always pointing the Jew to the heart. Look at verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. The law, and there are many other references here. Look at verse 2, verse 10. The law was always pointing to the heart. And what we've seen in the law is that Israel needed a new heart. 
Even for the practical righteousness, they need a new heart. Secondly, as such, the law of Moses was always near and accessible. Now, let's read the direct reference Paul gives. Look at verse 11. So Moses says, this is on the cusp of the promised land of the next generation, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off, these words, right, that he's presented before them. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But verse 14, here's the key. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And it would be to the Jew. Right? It would be. They would have this memorized. They are to meditate on it. They would know this word. But you recognize the tension here. There's a tension. The command is near and near to your heart, says Moses, but it's near to a bad heart. You see that? That's the tension. You know it. It's near to your heart. You might have an instinct there, but your heart is bad. Now, back to Romans, and I pray we're tracking and put this all together. This is the exact same language, again, the reference that Paul uses in verses 6 to 8. But what Paul does now is he applies that Mosaic law nearness to the nearness of who? You see it in brackets, likely in your version, Christ. In other words, this, you need not scale heaven or descend the abyss to find Jesus Christ. It was true of the law, it's true of him, he is near. So near as in your heart and your mouth, now hold those two parts, but notice the equation. Christ is now the object of your pursuit, not law. He is your righteousness. And note, Paul, what he's doing here. What does he, he makes Christ equal to the word. Do you see that? And beloved, this is the Lord who is close. This is the Christ who is close. The word of faith in your heart and in your mouth. What a difference from the words of the Mosaic law down to the embodiment and fulfillment Jesus Christ now lived. Amazing. The Lord who is close. So hang on to that. We're going to move on now to the people who call. And then put it all together. The people who call. Let's continue in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For Israel, the righteousness shift was simple. Abandon the law works to save. And confess this near Christ. The law fulfiller is Lord. And with that, believe in the heart that God raised him, this Lord, from the dead. It was that simple. That was the way to saving righteousness. Do you see that? Confession and belief. Not law and doing. It was faith that confesses and believes. You know, what is... First, interesting here is this roadmap of faith that we got in Deuteronomy. Recall Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So do you see what Paul is doing here? He has both the law of Moses and now Christ in view. And the body parts required for execution are the same. The mouth and the heart. And this confession was not lip service for the Jew, Of course, lip service still plagues us today, does it not? Listen, for the Jew to declare Jesus is Lord meant that Jesus was God. He was Yahweh. The term Lord is used in the Septuagint over and over to represent the name of Yahweh. They knew this. They understood that. So to confess Jesus as Lord was to confess even more than Jesus as Messiah, and it was that, To confess Jesus as Lord was nothing short of a declaration of Christ's deity. And the hardened heart cannot declare that. If we could take it a step further, it wasn't just to declare Messiah. It wasn't just to declare the deity of Christ. To say Jesus is Lord, now this arrests all of us even today. When you declare Jesus as Lord, you're also declaring what? Messiah, God, but that I'm not. You see that? Jesus is Lord means I'm not. Jesus is Lord means he is master of everything in my life. I might submit to our human sensibilities, that's the hardest thing of the confession, isn't it? 
Messiah? Sure. Deity? Sure. He has control over everything? Now, let's not get carried away. To confess Jesus is Lord is the confession. Let's look at verse 10. And this is the weight of it. For with the heart one believes. No doing here, right? And is justified with the heart. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let us never forget as the Jews did that God is interested. First and foremost, primarily with the heart. Now listen, to say that it doesn't mean he doesn't care about our doing. Let's not swing the other way. He does, but the doing must flow from the heart. The heart is not just the physical engine of the body, but the heart is the spiritual engine of the soul. Said Jesus in Luke 6.45, out of the overflow of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. We cannot miss that both the heart and mouth are tied together in these verses. In the Bible, there's no such disconnect. There is none. In other words, you cannot have one, a mouth confession that is genuine, without the other, heart belief. One without the other is either hypocrisy or misguided sincerity. To confess is to be justified. To be justified is to be saved. And to be saved is to confess. Paul returns to the Old Testament in a very familiar reference we looked at last time. Isaiah 28, 16, look at verse 11. That's where he goes for this. He says this, For the scripture says, this is Isaiah, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. We've looked at that last week. Again, the eschatological reminder, right? No shame on that day. Believing in Jesus, which is confessing Jesus, means that on that coming day, standing before God, if one is confessed and believed, he will not be put to shame. He will not be swept away. That is justification consummated. That is made right that makes an entrance. Westmont, that remains the content of saving righteousness. Not works, but confession. And not just a confession, a confession that Jesus is Lord, which means no longer you, as we've said. Which means that the confession must flow from your heart first. It is from a change of mind that was activated in your new heart and it produces fruit. You might ask, for who? Well, then, religious people, spiritual people, who? Well, in this letter, it's been for the Jew first that God's chosen people would believe. But here, Paul reminds us of what he said in this letter and what the prophets have said all along, the Jew first, but also the Greek, salvation for all. Look at verse 11 again, and let's read this in sum to get the scope. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see that? Everyone who believes, there's no distinction, Jew and Greek. Verse 13, everyone calling on the name of the Lord will be saved. Church, these are the people who call. People without distinction. People of all nations. Do you see that? Of all nations, not just Israel. All nations. Not just Jews that can call on the Lord now, but all nations that can call. It's a beautiful thing. At Westmount, it's the Indian, the Jamaican, Chinese, the Taiwanese, the Vietnamese. All nations calling out to him. Can we grab that? There is no barrier, no distinction. All, these are the people who call. People who call on the Lord from all nations. In fact, for Paul, verse 13 references the prophet in this prophecy. Turn to Joel. This is where he goes. And let's look at this briefly. Joel 2, you're familiar with this. The prophet Joel is presenting events here around the coming age, the eschatological day of the Lord, and we covered that a lot last year in our midweek studies. Well, after a plea to return to the Lord in verses 12 to 27, Joel gives the end time trigger in verse 28. Look what he says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And you know that reference. Right When the Spirit is poured out on all flesh, and you know that that's what Peter quotes in Acts 2. 
He says these people aren't drunk with the Holy Spirit falling on them. This is exactly what Joel foretold. When you have the languages representing, you have the dawning of this new age. Right? The Spirit poured out on all flesh, of course, in preview in Acts 2 is what we will see finally and ultimately in that coming time. But here the preview continues with all people and everyone from every tribe and tongue calling on the name of the Lord and they shall be saved. And beloved, we must pause as quickly as we're going to say, what have you? I don't know your background, as Jerry talked about that this morning, where you're from, what you've brought here to Westmount this morning, but what have you? Have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you called on him? There's no barrier to calling out to the Lord. Have you called on him? The one common trait of the saved is that they call on the Lord. They don't call on others. They don't call on self. They call on the Lord. The repentant call on the Lord. Such are the people who call. Next, the word who is Christ. Back to Romans 10. The word who is Christ. Let's pick it up in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who have they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is a well-known passage and picture and sequence. It's given us many of the great lines and the hymns that we sing, like even as we sang in Take My Life, right? We know this very well. But it's a picture of a sequence, A triggers B and so on. So before we look at that sequence and steps, we need to note the object in verse 14. How will they call on him? Who is the him? We keep holding it through these verses. The him is still Jesus from verse 9. And the him from verse 11, the cornerstone from chapter 9:33 and Isaiah 28:16, Jesus the Lord. Remember then it was the law the word that was near from Moses and Deuteronomy, and now it's here. It's still the word, but the word incarnate that who is in view. Pay attention to Christ as the word is the new pursuit. It's the new word proclaimed. And that's the hymn and the word in sequence in verse 14, 15. Note that. How will they call on Christ? The people who do call, how will they call on him if they have not believed? You cannot call on Jesus. Listen, you cannot call on Jesus if you do not believe. And listen to me, and I understand this may make us uncomfortable. No desperate situation can cause a human to call out on Jesus if they don't have a new heart. That's just simply desperation. That's a fear of death. Only regeneration in the heart that activates the heart to do as a heart ought to, to call on the name of the Lord, is what does it. And here, this is exactly what Paul is saying. You cannot call on Jesus if you do not believe, and and you must believe truly. And how can one believe then, and note the sequence with Paul, if they've not heard? Belief has a prerequisite, as God would ordain it. And it's not works. It is hearing. Beloved, you cannot believe unless you hear. And the logical implication of that, the word picks up next, end of verse 14. How are they to hear without someone preaching? Don't you love the logic of the word of God? Someone must speak if someone is to hear. The word must be preached. The word there means to proclaim. For sure, there's an official sense of that, which pastors and elders do. But that's not the sense here. This is proclaiming that focuses on the act. In other words, this is... Just pointing out that someone needs to do that in order for others to hear and believe and thus call on the name of the Lord. Paul is unpacking a principle here true of all who believe, but especially of Israel. And of all people, so let's go where Paul does. Israel has a running start, don't they? They should have a running start. They possess this Old Testament. In one sense, they had it stored up in their heart. They meditated on it. They knew these Old Testament references that Paul is going to. Hence, no context needed. I enjoy reading a 20th century Messianic Jew, Ziv Kalisher, some of you know him, and his enduring ministry to the Jews. Just an incredible ministry where he would go and literally an evangelist to the Jews, and he went so that they would hear. And every time you read One of his accounts is just so amazing. He's springing off an Old Testament text. 
Not even just Isaiah 53, but so many. He says, you know this, you know this, but it's misplaced. And I love what he does, Ziv, if you read his evangelism testimonies, he's going from the law to Christ. It's seamless every time. You're missing this. You know this law. You know it inside out, but you're missing the Christ of the law. The Jews of all people with that running start, they need to hear and believe. And yet Westmount, so do us all. The Lord remembers Lord of all. And of course, Gentiles, especially today. And Gentiles often lack a context, don't we? It doesn't mean we give up. It means we need that first. So before jumping to one needing to be saved, which we need to get to, we need to show them why. And listening to other teachings recently on that, how we are in a very different time, beloved. And I do need to pause. I know we're even tight on time, so this is probably chewing into minutes we need. But listen, understand we're in a very, very different time now. The era of cultural Christianity, when people understand Jesus and, you know, you didn't have much to get into spiritual conversation, it's over. That, that era is over. And that's why missionaries now are going back to Genesis 1, not just Matthew 1. Because people don't know Jesus. It's unfathomable for many of us in this room. There are many young people that are like, I think I've heard of a guy named Jesus. That's it. They don't know who Jesus is. And we give the whole counsel of God. And speaking of that, look at verse 15. How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You've likely, again, heard of this sequence applied directly to missionaries, sent ones, as we speak of missionaries, and they go to a text like this. And that's not wrong. That's not the original point. They, they are indeed sent ones, missionaries are, lowercase apostles, if we could say that, which is what the word means. But missionaries are not the only sent ones. You think of another passage, and you think of Matthew 28, and a good missionary sermon on that. Yet those first apostles in Paul would soon say this to Timothy, right? And to his that were following him and coming after him. 2 Timothy 2.2, what you've heard from me, Paul says, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. We'll be able to teach others also. Thus, here, here is the paradigm today. We are all sent to proclaim so they will hear and believe and then call on him. To affirm the need for sent ones with this good news of salvation, see here verse 15, Paul goes back again to the Old Testament. And here Isaiah 52. In the context here of good news to Israel's coming deliverance, of the Babylonian captivity, right? And in the wake of that, in verses 1 through 6, this is where Paul goes to verse 7 of Isaiah 52 and says, There is good news, Israel, published to you. Now listen what he does in Isaiah 52. He says, published to you, in immediate context, but in a greater context here, he's speaking of a future deliverance. Isaiah turns to Israel's Redeemer, and that servant in verse 13 of that chapter, not just the servant of Israel, the Savior of the world. But not all would believe. Isaiah 53.1 says this, who has believed what he's heard from us? And again, Paul goes to that reference. He goes to Isaiah again. And the question implies that some in Israel do not. Do not. And that's what Paul addresses next. Verse 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? It's exactly Paul's point. Israel should know Messiah, but they don't. And they don't all believe. Paul is reminding his readers here that not all Israel believe. But again, that doesn't mean the word of God has failed. And note what is not said. Paul doesn't say some believe, some not, some chosen, some not. Paul's not saying the point of this whole sequence is that God elects, so just sit back. No, look what he's doing. Jews and Gentiles need good news proclaimed so that they believe. This whole passage, beloved, oozes with the reality of man's responsibility. They go so that they can believe. Go and proclaim for the purpose of hearing and believing for those to call on his name so that others would believe. That's the point. Summed up in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing. Ultimately from sovereign God, yes, but by way of our ears literally. 
And that hearing, effectual hearing that truly believes, listen, only comes from the word of Christ. Not a righteous law, but the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Westmount God ordained it this way. He didn't parachute faith into our hearts. He could have done that, right? But he didn't do that. No, in his marvelous sovereignty and his great decree, he said ones, sent ones, who themselves have heard and believed to tell others so that they would hear and believe. That's how the good news is disseminated. And that's the economy of God and the word. Not of Moses, but the word who is Jesus Christ. Got to deal with these last few verses before we leave. We can't just leave them hanging. So let's do that briefly and then we will close. Verse 18, last point, the prophets who confirm. Paul asks in verse 18, have they not heard? He asked, because some might say the Jews have not. And that's a good question. Look where Paul goes next, verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for the voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That's taken from Psalm 19, a psalm of revelation. Here, for those of you that were in fundamentals, you know Psalm 19 gives you general revelation and what? Special revelation. And you should be saying, well, this is interesting that he's going to a part on general revelation here in verse 4. Basically, Paul is going to take that truth, and like he does so often, of general revelation, and he's going to apply it to the Jewish plight. The fact that general revelation is something that's known to every inhabitant of the globe by all, just like man looking at creation is without excuse, Romans 1.20, in his response to God, here's what Paul does. He says, so too is every single Jew held accountable for the knowledge of of this Christ. Listen, it's plain to them. It should be plain in this word. Listen, Israel, more than any nation, is on the hook for responding to Messiah. They cannot say when they hear, they do not understand. Good verse 19. They can't say this. But I ask, Israel did not understand? Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Moses confirms Israel's condemnation, taken, by the way, from Deuteronomy 32, 21. And again, you can just note that. Time continues to betray us here, but he goes to Deuteronomy again to that second generation and said, they grew fat and scoffed in verse 15. They were unmindful of the rock, verse 18. Thus, verse 21, they made me jealous with what is no God. They provoked me to anger. So I will make them jealous, listen, with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. We'll leave that jealousy for now. We're going to see it next week and on in chapter 11. The prophet Moses, even back in Deuteronomy, confirms his sovereign rejection. And he closes the argument going to Isaiah 65. Look at verse 20 and 21. He ends with this. Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Prophetic judgment with prophets confirming how Yahweh would judge Israel. This is the point as we close this chapter. Yahweh calling a people that were not looking for Yahweh. This is what we looked at last week. What a judgment and condemnation. You had me, you were right near, I was right there accessible to you by my word and you rejected me. So I'm going to go to a people that weren't even looking for me. Is that not a judgment? That, that is the judgment. Verse 21 of Israel, he says, as he turns, All day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Indeed he has. I mean, if the Gentiles, the foreigners, the not-my-people of the Old Testament, listen, if they have heard and believed and called with what they have, which is what, Westmount? Nothing compared to Israel. Then Israel's without excuse, right? They, the chosen people, God's people, can say nothing in protest. And finally, we would say this, they can say nothing about here about being elected and, and guaranteed and, and so on. Not all Israel is Israel. The responsibility to Embrace Messiah squarely on them. Verse 21. We close, and I just have to read these final words from Jonah so that we understand what's going on in verse 21. Of course, to go back to the account where to close, Jonah goes out of the city. 
And he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself. He sat under it in the shade till he just see what would become of the city. You remember this. The Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Incredible, isn't it? In his pouting and his anger, Jonah is angry that God is merciful. And what does God do? Makes a plant rise up for him. Jonah was exceedingly glad. Remember when he was exceedingly angry? Well, he's exceedingly glad. What a lesson for us, isn't it? We have no problem with exceeding gladness for the good things God does. He came up the next day. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Can you imagine that? Angry enough to die for that plant. Talk about the stubborn heart. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. It's an incredible account. And this is the hands extended in Romans 10, 21. To a disobedient and contrary Israel. To a disobedient and contrary Israelite in Jonah. And to a disobedient and contrary you and I. And to the nations around us. That is the issue today. Let us be clear about that. It is sin and disobedience. And what the world needs is repentance. And the offer is there. Hands extended. Beloved, we are running out of time. Not just this morning, I recognize that. Some of you probably are saying, yes, you are. But listen, can we pause? Can we take an extra minute to just reflect on that? Can we do that? I get it. Stomachs and minds and all of that. But can we just settle our hearts before life sweeps us away? We are running out of time. How many don't know their right hand from their left hand? We are running out of time. Don't look around at the news and the world and lament what's going on in the world. Think of those that don't know their right hand from their left hand. We are running out of time. But God is Lord of all. I want that to be your encouragement this morning. He is Lord of all. His purposes will be accomplished. His plans will not fail. Let's take that for us now as we think about our stead in Christ and our completeness in him. And we're going to sing that in a moment, but let's go to the Lord and pray as we give that meditation. Father, we thank you that we no longer are counted with those Ninevites that don't know their right hand from their left. Thank you that we're counted with those Ninevites that repented and called on your name. God, help us to keep that in mind as we continue in our day and week. Oh, Father, we thank you for Christ. Thank you for his nearness in our mouth and in our heart. We sing to his glory now, in Christ's name, amen.